Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Guns have a purpose. One. And that purpose is to do violence. And vehicles do violence, but that is not their singular purpose. And so to me, when I think about the risks again and the volume, why do you need so many things that have this single purpose to do violence, especially if if we're purely having them as a protective measure? This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here with us at Pantsuit Politics in the midst of a 2020 that continues to get stranger. Mm. We are going to try to make sense of what is happening today, as well as share two conversations with you that we're really excited about. We talked to two friends of ours, Sarah with her friend Elizabeth, about their ongoing discussion on abortion. They really strongly disagree with each other. They talk about it all the time. They're going to share some reflections on that with you today. 
a listener of Fancy Politics and someone who's become a friend of mine through a conversation where we disagree about gun rights, Eric is going to join me to talk about our discussions. So we know many of you are having hard talks right now, and we hope that this is a way to give you a window into what we gain from practicing conversations with people where we really are on very different ends of the earth on certain topics and still have a lot of mutual respect and admiration. Before we dive in, we want to welcome Danny to our executive producer team. Danny, thank you so much for joining this team of people who help us so significantly make Pantsu Politics. Danny wanted to recommend a podcast to everybody about COVID-19. It's This Week in Virology, and I've taken a look at it. I find it very helpful, and it's a good way to continue to get good, credible information about where we are in the scope of dealing with this virus that isn't going anywhere anytime soon, as the news this week makes clear. I was going to say, this week in virology, the news is that the president of the United States and basically his entire inner circle has contracted COVID-19. Just as we were beginning to record on Monday, October 5th, we received the news that Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary for the White House, has received a positive test result and will be quarantining. This is after Sunday when she walked outside, took her mask off and spoke to a gaggle of White House press reporters about the president's diagnosis. I don't know why they continue to do these press gaggles because they have not provided one teeny tiny moment of clarity since we got news of his positive test results late in the evening on Thursday. They had clearly an escalation in the events on Friday, resulting in the president being taken to Walter Reed Hospital for treatment. And then press conferences with his doctors that left everyone way more confused and with way more questions than they started. Then off the record conversations with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows that then seemed to directly contradict the president's doctors. We've gotten some Twitter videos with the president saying he's okay. Pictures of him signing blank sheets of papers, I think, and and supposed to imply that he's up and working and doing fine. And then, of course, just continued growing list of presidential insiders or, you know, people high up in the government who were at Amy Coney Barrett's nomination ceremony, it seems now was a super spreader event. As we're recording, it's about noon Eastern time on Monday. The president is still at Walter Reed Hospital. There is some discussion of him potentially going back to the White House later today or tomorrow. It's important to give you that timestamp because I do think we're going to continue to have a week of things shifting dramatically. And it is difficult to ground ourselves in what his real health situation is because we don't have a lot of information about the numbers, you know, the actual data that would give you at least a snapshot in time of how someone's doing just haven't been made available by this administration. I just think the contrast is so clear. You know, when everything started to go down on Friday and we know now that the scene inside the White House was escalating, his Oxygen levels were dropping. His fever was increasing. He was increasingly panicked. So was his family. Didn't want to go to the hospital. But the doctors were basically like, you can go now when you can walk out to the helicopter or it might get to a situation where we have to take you out on a stretcher. And it was, you know, as an American citizen, it was nerve wracking to watch CNN, which I almost never do, to see how he was going to exit the White House. Because we are all 
at risk if the president is incapacitated sometime, if there's some confusion inside the line of succession or who's holding power, who's making decisions, which I think there has been all weekend. And it was nerve wracking. Like, like, how's he going to come out? So he walked out, he waved. But we know now that his oxygen levels were dropping. We also can tell from the, you know, the treatments that they've released since then that they were giving him treatments for pretty severe cases of COVID. Okay. So during all that, everybody was like, we need transparency. We need transparency. We need transparency. We need to know what's going on. And that is true. And their response to that, which is to send out doctors to paint rosy pictures and to post silly photo ops. And then yesterday, Sunday, sending the president in a hermetically sealed vehicle with Secret Service agents as a COVID-19 positive case to wave at the people around his hospital. It's just like, you guys, don't, you don't know how to be transparent. You don't know how to make responsible decisions. Like all you understand is optics and you can't even get that right. Like, can you not see that this is not the transparency people needed? They don't need to, you know, seeing him was nice. And I do think that was important, but like just the ham-fisted way that they handled the call for transparency and the need for responsible management of a crisis like this when so much is on the line for him and for everybody who's come in contact with him and for the nation as a whole is so reflective of their failure of leadership. I think a lot about the torts principle that you have no duty to act, but if you act, you have to act reasonably. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I felt watching Dr. Conley speaking about the president I understand that it's difficult for a physician who is in the United States Navy, whose commander in chief has probably instructed him to not provide a whole lot of medical details to come out and give a briefing like that. I think it would have been better to have more silence than to have the fiction and the confusion Mm -hmm. that was created over the weekend. It's not good to have silence. That would have been destabilizing in its own way. But to have conflicting accounts of his health is really tricky. And I understand that there are some issues where opinion is involved. I mean, I experienced during my mom's hospitalization, she was released from the hospital this weekend. And I should say that as though it's like great news. And it is in some ways. And she's so much happier sleeping in her bed and being able to take a shower and being able to go to the bathroom when she wants to go to the bathroom. So she's I mean, she's much happier at home. It feels to me like my mom is floating in outer space right now because she still has to isolate. She still has symptoms, so she's still contagious. And not having eyes on her all the time is making me a nervous wreck. But anyway, I understand during her hospitalization, the picture of how things were going did feel like it changed with shifts to me. What nurses and doctors are there and and what information are we getting from them? So I get that there's an element of opinion. But if you're not going to come out and give basic vital signs, I just don't know that it's worth coming out. Because when we are living in this moment where everything feels so precarious and we can't even trust information about the president's physical condition, it just made me think about like, What would happen if the electrical grid in a major city went down right now? Mm -hmm. How many Americans would believe if it were a, as the president likes to say, Democrat-run city? How many Americans would believe that our own government might have caused that? And what if this administration told us that it was China, but then there were leaked intelligence reports that it was actually Iran? Or, you know, they're just... 
I am worried that we're in a moment that is primed for a foreign actor to take hostile action against us and rest assured that they won't get tagged with responsibility because the American people won't believe what's told to them about those types of events. You know, to be fair, which I try to be, this is not the first president or administration to try to hide the reality of a president's health diagnosis or medical treatment from the American people. We got a long history with this. FDR and JFK and Eisenhower, Wilson during the last pandemic. Okay, so this is this is not abnormal for a president's health to be in danger and for the people surrounding him to feel like this is information that would destabilize the government and convince themselves that the right thing to do is to keep it a secret. But to be honest, they couldn't even do that. It's not like they're <laughs> they're not doing that. I mean, they're sending out a, a doctor to say everything's fine. And simultaneously, the chief of staff is coming out and saying it's really bad to reporters while not communicating with his own staff at all. You know, the, the first lady's chief of staff sent an email, the vice president's chief of staff sent an email to the staff saying work from home, follow CDC guidelines. Mark Meadows didn't even communicate to the White House staff. You know, and I think the idea that they're like too busy, they're not worried about the destabilization of the American government. They're worried about their own butts. That is indicative of the fact that they don't understand testing and therefore told everyone at the super spreader event nomination ceremony that once you have a negative test, you can take your mask off. They didn't communicate with people when they understood that Hope Hicks was representing symptoms and had tested positive. They didn't even prevent the president from traveling when he was exhibiting symptoms. He was exhibiting symptoms and still going out and exposing hundreds of people. I think the the sort of the, like shocking things to me were a couple of points on, on that timeline. One that he, I think it was indicative of they're like totally not understanding the science and their disrespect and lack of concern or value for Anyone like I felt like that I've always thought that they, the president's inner circle had a lack of respect for his own supporters, but the lack of respect they even or concern they even showed for fundraisers like powerful people who are giving them lots of money caught me off guard. Honestly, it really did. Like as someone who lived in Washington, D.C., like these are the power players. These are the VIPs. They're the ones that are usually treated with kid gloves. And I don't know if it was just like, oh, well, we need the money and we have to still do the fundraiser. Or what? But that caught me off guard. The like, oh, yeah, we'll definitely expose all our VIPs, people who we might not need more money from, honestly. The chief of staff coming out and directly contradicting the doctors. I was like, I, I don't understand the motivation for that. That is like totally cross purposes and confusing to me. But then, you know, individual moments like that, I think that. And then I think to the bigger picture of this is a man who's been lying to us from the beginning, from the birther, from the crowd size, like, he knows no other way than to lie to cover his own instincts, which are often terrible. And so there's like, I guess it's it's not necessarily that the overall approach shocked me. It's just that even with the stakes this high, there is no tempering of that instinct to shred it all to protect themselves. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from with my power grid hypothetical, because it's not about this one specific incident. I think this one specific incident 
has reminded me or revealed to me how far along the destabilization path we are. Mm-hmm. It is a continuance of a theme. And look, I have no idea. The president may be doing great. I have no idea how he's doing. And that's not a good thing that we don't really know. I don't want to assume that he is in much worse shape than they've told us. I hope he's doing fine. I hope he recovers quickly. I hope he does not suffer in the course of this. I also am mindful of the fact that everything we've read about Trump's upbringing, there is significant medical trauma throughout his life story. His Mm -hmm. mother was sick so frequently. His Mm -hmm. father lied so often about his mother's condition and the severity of it. It's widely reported that he's a germaphobe. The more I understand about his biography, the more I understand why. And so I have a lot of compassion for what he's going through. I have a lot of compassion for the pressure that must exist when you've convinced a lot of your supporters that this thing is no big deal. And they immediately Mm -hmm. start tweeting about how you're just going to crush this virus. It is a hard thing to be sick. It is a very hard thing to be sick with something that is not well understood. And his whole life is a testament to the pressure that he feels to try to be adored and accepted and deified in some ways. And so, I mean, there is a lot going on here for him and all the people who work with him. And I'm worried for all the people who work with him because the exposure list that we're getting, the people who've tested positive, are the names we recognize. Mm -hmm. You know there are so many people behind the scenes who have been exposed and perhaps have contracted the virus, and we're not getting that information. It hurts me when somebody tweets out a list that's like, plus three journalists, plus five debate Mm -hmm. staffers. Like, those are people with names, too, and they matter, and their risk here matters. And we don't know how this is going to impact them. So... There are just so many layers to this whole thing. And I wish for all of us that we could get one calm, steady voice that could cut through that and just share with us the reality of what we're facing. We have listeners asking us questions like, what happens if he dies before the voting ends? Or what happens if the 25th Amendment kicks in or, you know, I don't know, and I don't know if it's the right moment to ask those questions because I don't know how serious this is. And Mm -hmm. I don't and I don't want to to be alarmist if there is nothing to be alarmed about. If he is truly in the hospital to receive a battery of drugs and monitor levels that look pretty stable, no, I don't think a transition of power is necessary. I just don't know if it's worse than that. I have no idea. Well, I think, honestly, anytime a president is checked into a hospital, there needs to be a serious conversation about transition of power and the 25th Amendment. I just do. I think that's the smart, responsible thing to do. Now, I don't. that doesn't mean I want it to trend on Twitter. I think that there needs to be people high up in the United States government that are prepared to know the answers to those questions and the 16 other different scenarios that could play out immediately. They shouldn't be caught flat-footed. So, like, if he goes to the hospital, he's clearly receiving drugs for a severe case of COVID-19, then, yeah, these questions need to be answered. To me, the other thing I didn't even understand to this morning as I was reading a lot of reporting is all these people that were exposed, especially during the debate, which is next to a hospital, and then we're going like nearby to the hotel without masks, walking through the lobby, exposing other members of the public who are perhaps there to see or be near people in the hospital for other types of treatments. Like it's just the the level of selfishness and the level of either willful ignorance or deliberate disregard for the risk that they were putting other people under 
is unbelievable. Like, I don't want to use shocking. I guess it's not shocking. They show willful disregard for people through their policies and their statements and their approaches all the time. But to see it play out in such a intense and obvious manner, I mean, this was obvious, right? Like, it was clear by the way that they had been reacting to the virus. They thought daily testing was going to protect everybody. That was even though every medical expert says that there are holes in the testing, there are problems with the incubation period, that like the regular testing is not a strategy in and of itself. So it was entirely predictable that this would unfold in the way that it did and that they would put themselves and other people and members of the public and their staffs and God knows who else and the country at large at risk because they were engaging in risky behavior. The only thing that I pray is that they are held responsible for this in the election, that this willful disregard for other people and for their own constituents is, you know, something that voters keep in mind as we all fill out our ballots or enter the voting booth. I think it can be hard because we're living this to keep the thread of like what we've learned about COVID-19 throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And to think about exactly where we are in that process You know, I worry that a lot of people are still in that mindset of what were the lockdowns for if we're all eventually going to get it. Mm. And what the lockdowns were for was to keep people like my mom alive now. Right. We bought Mm -hmm. enough time without hospitals being just completely overrun. Some were, but without our entire healthcare system across the entirety of the country being so bogged down with cases that they could learn something and figure out what helps the president is probably going to recover much faster today than he would have if he had contracted this in March because we flattening the curve meant something. It was really important. And the testing, I think people are going to have questions about this. Yes, they had access to a level of testing at the White House that I sincerely wish we had in every, I don't know, public school throughout the country at a mm-hmm. minimum, but we don't. So, yes, they have really good frequent testing. And a test is not a vaccine. And I think that they were treating the test like a vaccine. And I think pervasive in all of this thought is that you really can have like a classist inoculation to disease. That's not new in our history and our thinking either. But when you think about the equivalent of a wedding taking place at the White House to nominate a new Supreme Court justice and everybody thinking that's going to work out differently than a wedding, there is a real classist component to the way they're looking at this. There's the disregard for science and the disrespect for science and the disrespect for other humans in the world. But there is also, I think, a sense of like, well, we're the powerful, important people. We have access to all the good stuff. This Mm -hmm. won't get us. Same thing with the event at Bedminster. That's a wedding. These events that the Trump campaign has been hosting and that the Trump administration has been hosting are the kinds of events that regular people all over the country have canceled or significantly changed or postponed out of concern for the people that they love. And this administration, I think, has just been in the mindset that if we have the best tests, we have the best doctors— And we're the best, most powerful people. It's not coming to our doorstep. Well, and, you know, even in that mindset, which is wrong and reprehensible, 
the deliberate like thumbing of your nose at all those Americans who have made tremendous sacrifices, people who haven't hugged their parents, grandparents who haven't seen or even met their own grandchildren, people who have canceled weddings or gone to funerals, forget weddings, like funerals where people could not hug loved ones who were suffering or could not even be in the same room to mourn a parent. It's just such a complete absence of leadership, of empathy, of compassion, of understanding that like just because we could, maybe we shouldn't because other people can't, people that are depending on us, people that look to us for leadership. But we have this moment to lock up the Supreme Court and we want to celebrate that. It's just so infuriating and it's so ugly. It's just ugly. And here's something else I want to say with regards to who they're exposing to risk. So when I worked for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2007, I did advance work, which required close coordination with the Secret Service. And I got to know and work with many Secret Service agents. And it was one of my favorite parts of the job, so much so that I still have my uh, Secret Service buttons they give you for every event still framed in my house. I have enormous respect for the Secret Services. I think many Americans do. And I cannot articulate how bad it has to get for Secret Service agents or leadership to speak even off the record to journalists about how they feel they're being put at risk. The fact that he wanted to take a trip around the hospital, that he exposed the agents in the car and many other people, that he continues to, that he was walking around, going to these events, requiring security and exposing the agents themselves to COVID, exposing their family members. Can you even imagine sort of like, we don't know, Secret Service agents with children recovering from cancer, parents with all sorts of, or spouses with all sorts of pre-existing conditions and comorbidities that expose them to enormous risk. And to do that so flagrantly, to treat them basically like staff is abhorrent. And to have them speak out because they're so frustrated is a huge, huge deal. And this is what I would say to all of the comments about virtue signaling with masks, which I can't believe we even have to discuss, but there's a lot of this discussion out there. I think we need some virtue to be signaled. Mm -hmm. I think that Joe Biden is right to wear a mask even when he is quite distanced from people around him and even when he's outside, because I think he's just trying to say, like, this is what we're supposed to do and let's do it. Why take the risk? And having lived through this with my mom now, not even suffered it myself, just watch someone I really, really love go through this in a hard way. I don't understand why we would take the risk especially as flu season is coming. You know, I think mm -hmm. about, again, mom's at home now. If she gets exposed to flu or just a regular cold or something else as her lungs are trying to build their way back to breathing without assistance, that would be catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Why would we take those risks? It is not easy. Nothing about this year has been easy but we have learned a lot over the course of the year. And to be seven months into this and to watch this spread unfolding from Washington, D.C., it is really unnerving to me that no one seems to have a handle on this. I think it was mm -hmm. Axios that described it over the weekend that there are this is a virus. It's random. It's indiscriminate. We're smarter than it. And there are countries in the world now that are in control of this virus. But in the United States, the virus is still in control of us. 
Well, they're not even, the task force hasn't even been meeting. They've been meeting like what, once a week? As we approach a season, we know people will move indoors and that there will be increased risk and they're not even meeting regularly. It's unacceptable. And this is just the clearest manifestation yet that they don't have a plan, have not had a plan, do not respect what Americans are going through, do not have any desire except to further their own interests. And I was just speaking as the, the Trump administration as a whole. And it's just, you know, I don't know how much more clearly this could be put on display as we're all making assessments about who to vote for. Can we spend a minute on Breonna Taylor's case before we go on? Yeah. There have been lots of big developments in the Breonna Taylor case since we last spoke about it. A grand juror filed a motion to have a judge make the grand jury proceedings not secret so that the public can understand what prosecutors presented as options to the grand jury. The grand juror felt that the attorney general who ran for elected office seeking political and public accountability for his decisions hid behind the grand jury in announcing mm-hmm. that charges would not be filed related to Breonna Taylor's murder, that the only charges would be wanton endangerment related to an officer firing into other apartments. And so separate from that motion, the judge decided to release the records of the grand jury proceedings in the normal course of things. And the attorney general said that that would also resolve this motion and did make those records public. There are hours and hours of testimony that have been released. I've read a number of accounts of those. I have not listened to them myself, which is something I would love to do in a normal universe where other news weren't breaking every five seconds. But the takeaway to me is that, number one, it is really unclear what happened that night. And the grand jury received a version from prosecutors that they understood was unclear, but that prosecutors told them led to basically inescapable legal conclusion. And I think there's a really significant problem with the way Daniel Cameron described what happened to the public in those grand jury proceedings versus what actually happened in those grand jury proceedings that further diminishes Mm -hmm. public trust. And I also think it's clear from what was presented to the grand jury that we have a significantly lax approach mm-hmm. to narcotics warrants being executed. Because it startled me to see that the detectives who went basically talked about themselves as an older group of guys going to do this because it should have been no big deal. And one guy wasn't even supposed to work that night and he volunteered to go. And there wasn't at least a written plan on how all these warrants were going to be served. And it just seemed so amateur at every level for something as serious as entering a person's house. And I think that we've talked about a lot of good reforms to come out of this case for a while. But there are many, many more process issues that this case reveals need to be addressed coming, walking way back from the moment that they entered her apartment It's just it's really disturbing and it continues to make me feel so much for this family because it this information to me makes her death all the more tragic, just Mm -hmm. all the more tragic. Well, I just think there's this idea that grand juries are these sort of 
protected, completely objective bodies that really just go through the evidence and make their own call. And the truth is, just like many other parts of the criminal justice process, the prosecutor plays an incredibly powerful role, too powerful. I think the thing I learned from my time studying criminal justice in law school is that prosecutorial discretion is part of the problem. And I think this is just one more representation of that, you know, especially because so many prosecutors are elected. And so there are political ramifications. I think that's what you're seeing in the attorney general's case, that instead of seeking justice, we're seeking good political outcomes. And they are often in conflict, not just in the the individual cases, but in the processes themselves, like with these warrants, like with drug charges, like with, oh, I don't know, the war on drugs at all, which was popular politically and a disaster, a national tragedy policy-wise. I think there's an aspect for her family that this has got to be so heartbreaking as they learn more. And also that they have to feel, I, I would feel if I was them, like, well, at least I'm not like, it's like the revelation when you're being gaslit, like, you know, like, oh, well, I'm not crazy. No, we knew something was wrong. We knew that this process was messed up and that they were basically lying to us. And so at least having a member of the grand jury bravely step forward and say like, oh, what he said is not what happened. will give this family some sense that like their sense that they weren't being told the whole truth was correct. Before we transition to our conversations with Elizabeth and Eric, we wanted to share a moment of hope and positivity. And here we are going to share with you a bit of Celeste Williams speaking. Celeste is a candidate for the United States Congress in Arkansas's third congressional district. We had the pleasure of doing a Facebook live event with her. She is very smart. She's a healthcare professional. She has a really focused perspective on COVID-19 as well as other issues. So here is Celeste. Hi, I'm Celeste Williams. I'm a family nurse practitioner and Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress in Arkansas's 3rd Congressional District. I'm running for Congress because as a family nurse practitioner, every day I see patients struggling with the cost of health care and prescription drugs. And I believe that in a country with so much, we can do better. No one should go broke because they get sick. We must invest in a world-class education system that goes all the way from pre-K to K through 12 and make sure that college is affordable for everyone and that we have good job training opportunities for those who aren't going to college so that everyone can succeed because all workers in America should be paid a fair wage. I hear from people every day about how exhausted they are with politics. People are tired, and they don't want to hear continued divisive rhetoric. They want solutions to the real problems that they and their family are facing. People want to make sure that they can get their health care needs met, that their kids are going to be able to finish college without starting life, with a tremendous amount of student debt, and they want to make sure that their kids have the same opportunities that they have had. I don't think that anyone's success in life should be determined by the zip code in which they live. I certainly want to make sure that we protect our democracy because I believe that is truly under attack right now. And we have to have 
a government that is by the people and for the people so that each and every person can live their American dream, however they define that. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk to you. And as an aside, I am such a fangirl of pantsuit politics. I love you both. Thank you so much for all the work that you do. To learn more about my campaign, please visit my website, CelesteWilliamsForArkansas.com. You can sign up to help volunteer to make phone calls. And of course, there's a great big donate button that you can contribute to our campaign. I think it is so important to invest in areas that have been historically very conservative. And this district is changing and you can help me speed that change along so that everybody has an opportunity for better. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash pantsuit. We are so thrilled to share these conversations with everyone today. I spoke with my best friend, Elizabeth, who I have been in conversation with about abortion and reproductive rights for almost the entirety of our 20-year friendship. And Beth spoke with Eric, a listener who she has built a relationship with, talking about the Second Amendment and gun control. We really wanted to share our conversations with them because so many of you are either engaging with these conversations for the first time or engaging with these conversations in a more deep and complex way with your family members. And what we're always saying on Pantsuit Politics and in our book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, is that this is a long game, right? And we often talk about that with Beth and I, that we're having this ongoing conversation, but we do this with other people in our lives. And, you know, in such an intense moment, I think the best strategy is always to show, don't tell. And so we wanted to show you what that looks like with these two very important people in our lives. I am so excited to welcome my beloved friend, Elizabeth Farrell, to Pantsuit Politics. Elizabeth Farrell, how long have we been friends? Before our names were Elizabeth Farrell and Sarah Holland, that's one thing. Well, yeah, for sure. Um, Since 1999. 1999. Yesterday and 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And how long have we been talking about abortion during that friendship, friend? Since 1999, we were on the same side and you were a staunch Baptist. Yeah, I was a super Baptist when I came to Transy. That is truth. That is truth. That is accurate. Uh, we fell in love at the same time. We we're in the same grade. Um, I do feel like our conversations uh, shifted when we had kids, but let's go back to that. Um, yeah. Let's go back to our religious background. So I was a staunch Baptist. Um, you are what I lovingly call a super Catholic. Do you want to lay out your Catholic bona fides for people? Sure. So um, I grew up in a really Catholic city mm-hmm. with really Catholic parents. And <laughs> uh, we went to church every single Sunday. And I still do to this day for the most part. And um, I actually love being Catholic. And it's funny, my aunt always tells the story about how... Uh, my parents church shopped for different denominations when I was in late grade school and we would go to these churches and I would say, it doesn't feel like home, mm. <laughs> which is uh, really funny. Um, because I don't, I don't know if I would always say that now, but, um, anyway, yeah, I still feel at home in, in the Catholic church and, um, I just have one, I just have one brother, but I have, um, I married a non-Catholic who then converted 12 years in <laughs> well, 12 years in, no, nine years in. Okay. And uh, we have five children. Yeah. Lots of cat, lots of, lots of big Catholic family. Yeah. Lots of Catholic (laughs) families. Um, I always tell people that we would drive to the beach and you and your family would be in the car for like six hours and your butts would drive straight to mass so that you didn't miss mass. So we didn't miss mass. And so we didn't have to get up the next morning because you know, priorities. (laughs) 
<laughs> you have a little app on your phone that tells you all the mass times around Paducah when you come visit me. I do. We but go, now we, you we try to hit the feast days and everything. Yeah. Now you told me though, when we, and I asked you if you wanted to do this podcast that you wouldn't be Catholic enough for other people. Right. Right. Because you know, it's a competition. Ah, I didn't know that. Well, actually right? because that happens in every denomination. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do. Th- yeah. Go ahead. No, in high school, I went to a very um, conservative non-diocesan. So non-diocesan just means it's not part of the Catholic diocese we were in. It was an independent Catholic school. It was so Catholic, it didn't fit in. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I wasn't Catholic enough all the time for those people. And it, sometimes it gave me a real complex. So. That's funny. Well, it's just funny to me because I think a lot of people will like try to burn me. And they'll, they're, throughout my life, they'll do a lot of like, oh, well you're just so liberal, including my own father. You're just so liberal. You won't even hear people that disagree with you. And I just want to be like, I always want to trot you out as like, you don't understand. I have been having this conversation for 20 plus years with someone with very different religious background from me. And I don't have, we don't have these problems. So it's really not about whether somebody disagrees with you or not. No, no. It's about, I think it's really so much about listening to the other person's perspective and understanding that you're not there to convert each other. That's not what, that's not what friendship is about. It's not about, because, because truly like, can you be friends with someone who you need them to agree with you on everything? If, because if you do, then you're going to have a really small group of friends. Mm -hmm. That's the truth of it. And not that a large group of friends is the goal here, but like we all have to live together and it's helpful to learn to live with lots of different people. (laughs) Well, and I think what the paradox is, because we, you know, I, well, I won't say that ever I was not trying to convert you, especially early before oh. we became mothers in college. I think in college, everybody's trying to convert everybody else. In fact, I was thinking, I was thinking back to all our conversations. And I think the most, the only time I really remember you getting like seriously riled at me is that time. And I think we were still in college in the car when I said, well, why can't I just not tell anybody and take communion at a Catholic church, even though I'm not Catholic. Do you oh, remember how mad you got? You got mad. I was mad. I yeah. was mad. I was like, why would you, but you know, here, I think that, and this is funny because I just read those four tendencies. I think part of that though, is that I am very much a, what am I, Sarah? I'm an obliger. I'm an obliger. Yeah. And right. I'm a rebel. Well, or questioner. No, no, I'm a questioner. You're a questioner. Right? Yeah. So you're, you're questioning why is this necessary? And I'm questioning, why would you ever question that? <laughs> <laughs> that is more of like because what is the priest who married us was like I prefer we were just debating whether to have a mass or just a marriage ceremony right and he was like I don't like first communions at weddings so like he clearly took it in stride and he was like nah there's just no need to put everybody through that if Mm. most of your people coming to your wedding aren't catholic there's just no need and uh so yeah I mean and that was obviously later than well and I think that that's also a reflection of what's happened a lot in our conversations and it's true for Beth and I's conversation too I think we sorted out pretty quickly well I don't know not not pretty quickly and not without some strife that our personalities are different and acknowledging like so much of this is about personalities like you know whenever I say on the show like oh we have to rub each other's rough edges off I always think of you and our also catholic friend Aaron, um, and my college roommate for three years who have very different personalities than me. And we're like, you know, I just remember so many times where y'all were like, Hey, we get that you like to argue. That's cool. (laughs) We don't. 
Um, it's not like a reflection of anything other than like, that's just not our favorite hobby. Like it is your favorite hobby. And I was like, uh, uh, okay. Okay. I can, I think I understand sort of. Yeah, definitely true. And I think over time too, I don't know about if this is true for Aaron, but I know it's true for me because I will, I will go into territory that I know is dangerous waters with my family now that I used to never, I would never walk under those waters, but now I will. And they don't like it. (laughs) <laughs> I just got off the phone with my brother and he was like, I, I told him what I was doing. And um, I said, you were going to interview Elizabeth Warren. He was like, who would ever interview her? I was like, well, Sarah. And he goes, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cause she's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I just think like, well, and I never felt that from either of you, even like when we were in college, like I knew we felt differently, but I never felt in our conversations, even before we had kids that, you, there was like moral judgment. Like there was like, definitely, we are not going to agree on this, but not because you're a terrible person and I cannot see in any, and I never felt that way about you. Like I understood where you were coming from. I disagreed with it, but I understood where you were coming from. But I do think once we were both mothers, the conversations definitely changed. Don't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think what a neighbor asked me not that long ago, have you changed since you had your first child? And I looked at her and I was like, I am the same person, but I'm a completely different person. And mm-hmm. so I think that changes your perspective on life so much that it, it can't help but change your conversations with your friends. Yeah. And I, I just think that I think both of us, you know, from my view, looking back on them, I think both of us just started to see the complexity of either, both of our sides more clearly right. and that it wasn't simple and it's never simple. Once you go through, I think, pregnancy and right. birth and become a parent, like you just realize like, oh, the idea that this is clear cut is absolutely ludicrous. Right. Yes. Well, and I also think, you know, looking back over sort of how we've, the conversation has changed in the way, and I think this helped me think through it more clearly is you really pushed me to separate like the ethical concerns from laws. Like, you know, and I think it's funny because I think your position shifted on that over time too, but I think you really, because you're, because I was coming from a perspective of policy primarily, and you were coming from a perspective of ethics primarily. And so I think right. you saw that clear, more clearly. And before I did that, Hey, we're talking on two different playing fields. So we might as well figure out which right. one we want to talk about first. And you know, I'm such a science nerd. That was another thing that really bugged me about the abortion conversation. To start. I mean, even when I was in high school, it bothered me that you have to use really precise language about what you mean, because I think there's arguments someplace. You mean, like, you why mean, are you arguing about this? This is not an argument. You, you need mean, to change your language for there to be an argument. You mean killing babies is not a precise argument or killing women oh, is not a precise yeah. You don't, you don't hear the precision of science in that language. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Cause I think, so I, I, that to me is like the first part. In fact, I'm not really sure. I remember us having like really strong arguments about abortion in college. I, my memories start like sort of in our mid twenties when we were able to kind of clarify, well, we're, you're talking about this and I'm talking about this and those are two different things. That's kind of where my, my memories of really good conversations begin. Yeah. Agreed. Which is probably not an accident. (laughs) No, I mean, certainly not. Certainly not. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I look back, like kind of where we've gone over time too, I think it's funny because, you know, in so many ways, like, particularly your mom was such a foil in our conversations because she feels so strongly about it. Did you ever feel pulled? Like, did you feel like I was in one ear and she was in the other? 
Oh my gosh. I still feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) When we're not on the podcast. Well, and maybe we should talk about this now, but (laughs) so I voted yesterday, right? Yeah. I'm not in the United States and we have to do mail-in ballots. Um, and so we do mail-in, they, they say on their, their military ballots. I don't know if everybody's say that. But um, anyway, that's, that's our ballot, even though we are not active duty military anymore. And um, so I voted yesterday and I am a no, I'm a never Trumper. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, my mom has a really hard time with that. And I was like, look, mom, I didn't vote for him last time, but you got your, your uh, Supreme court judges. And mm-hmm. now there's going to be another one. And he even might get to do this one. And before yeah. he gets out of office. And so the Supreme court judges are done. I'm never Trumper and I'm going to vote the way I'm going to vote. And you don't get to pick. And yeah. I think he's a crazy person. And then I told, I told Shelly that I would, he asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And, he, and I said, I want, I want an end to Corona. And I also want a president who doesn't flippantly say that he's not so sure about the handover of power, if he's going to go with that. <laughs> and so I told my mother that, and she was like, he didn't say that you listened to the wrong news. I'm like, Oh, Christ almighty. Oh Lord, Lord. <laughs> Help me now. Help me now to handle this. But I do think, I think talking to each other does help me. Like, I think it helps me understand where people are coming from. And I think, you know, you know, with my dad, because obviously my dad feels differently than I do. um, And it's almost like I can, you know, I hope it doesn't make me like cocky, but there is a part of me that feels that like, feels like, well, I have the wind at my back because I have somebody who I've been talking about this with a long, for a long time. And even though we don't see the world completely the same, we see this the same. Right. Like, well, I, I, there's a lot of women who feel that way right now. Like I'm not, I'm I might different. not be an evangelical Republican and I might not be, you know, a hardcore Catholic and I might be, but like, there's this, like this sort of crowd of women that are like, well, we're all different, but we see this the same. So we're clearly not crazy. Right. And I think that's very true. You know, when I look at who I want to be the president of the United States, and I want that to be someone who I can call a role model to my children. And obviously there are serious exceptions to this. I mean, Nixon stands out, but like, you, you know, and, you, and they're not going to be a role model in every single way. Right. Yeah. But you want somebody who can at least get up and act like an adult in front yeah. of a room of adults and who can answer a question coherently on a consistent basis. And I just, I don't see that. And so this is this, to me, this goes way beyond, way beyond political parties. Anyway. Well, how do you feel about that? So when you told your mom, that's interesting that you said like, well, you got your justices. Like, how would you feel if they, if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade? What do you think would happen to the abortion debate if that, if that came to be? What do I think would happen to the abortion debate? I don't know that the debate would change, to be honest. I think that um, instead of I, th- I think it would, I don't think the abortion debate itself is going to change ever, mm. <laughs> but oh, that's depressing. That's so depressing. Why can't they right. all just follow we, our lead? <laughs> I don't know. I don't, well, no, 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 no. Well, I think there is always going to be the, all the kinds of people that we have in the world right now. I think there will always be all of those kinds of people. So I don't think the debate will change. Um, but I think that, that our legal system will be very clogged. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> to say that. Like, I, I just, I see that the problem with abortion is so much deeper than a law, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, my stance on abortion, as far as do I think it's right or wrong, it's wrong. I think it's wrong. And I think it's wrong in all cases. And I know that there are lots and lots of people who would disagree with that. That doesn't mean I think it needs to be illegal. I don't mm-hmm. know if that even makes sense. But 
I don't think that it being illegal makes it so that nobody ever does it. Right. And I think that that is a, a falsehood that we tell ourselves. Um, and I think that reading a lot of history mm-hmm. has really taught me that there has never been a time in the history of the universe that women haven't had unwanted pregnancies and that is right. never going to change. Mm-hmm. That's never going to change. And, yeah, and again, I think a lot of people would have a problem with me saying that I, I don't think overturning Roe v. Wade is the answer, but it's not. I mean, I feel like we're lying to ourselves mm-hmm. if we say that. And I, I mean, you, you and Beth have taught me that overturn is not the reason the right terminology, but reversing that decision or making a new decision that makes that moot is not going to change people's minds. It's not going to make all the pro-choicers in the world go, oh, right. No, yeah. abortion is wrong. Yeah. And so I, because I think that there is, there's so much deeper problems. And then the other, the other issue I have with this idea of overturn Roe v. Wade. Okay. Overturn. So every woman now has to have these babies. Okay. Um, And I think all babies are precious. I really, I I deep in my heart believe that. Um, I think that, um, and this is my Catholicism coming out, my God creates these souls and puts them into these people who can be amazing. And I think everybody has that in them. I I truly do. Um, But the same party that wants all the women to have all the babies doesn't want to make any change in healthcare to make having those babies easier Mm -hmm. or give women any additional benefits that allow them to continue to work Mm -hmm. and take care of those babies. Um, Listen, that's true for wanted pregnancies, much less unwanted pregnancies. Exactly. Yeah. You don't get support for one in pregnancies either. That's the problem. Right. Well, and I just think it's tr- hard to, and this is what I've learned from listening to you for all these years. When you say it's wrong, what you're not saying is some sort of moral judgment on the woman. It's not like, no. you're like she is wrong. She is bad. And that's what all those lang- the, all those laws about, well, let us preach to you about the heartbeat and let us make you watch right. ultrasounds. That's the assumption, right? Is that she's a bad moral actor. And if we can just exactly. get in front of her, then we can change that. Right. And, and I think I, I'm, I'm going to say something that might come across as judgmental, but I think sometimes when people say those things, I hear women who've never had a pregnancy they felt ambivalent about. Mm. Um, and I think as a mom of five, I have been pregnant and thought, oh, my lands, I don't know if yeah. I can do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how this is going to change my family. I'm worried. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I think I want to kill this baby. Right. <laughs> which of course that's the language I used, but I don't want to terminate this pregnancy. That's yeah. not what I want. Um, and I'm willing to make that sacrifice, but that's the word, right? Is it's yeah. a sacrifice. Yeah. Love is always a sacrifice and you're choosing to love this, which means that you're choosing to not do other things. There are yeah. things that aren't going to happen because this is what I'm choosing. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I think that by, I think that the abortion debate really on both sides sometimes oversimplifies all of that. Oh Yeah. Um, and I don't understand the nastiness. I think that's, to me, that's the most distasteful thing to me about mm-hmm. abortion is that the nastiness that goes on. And I, and I mean that for both sides. Well, yeah, cause it, it becomes this, I think what the pro-choice people feel is like, oh, well, you know, they hear language about every life is a gift from God. And then this harsh judgment for the women as if the women are not right children of God, you know, as if they are not souls to be cared for and valued. And I, you know, I think too, like, you know, look, I haven't had a pregnancy I was ambivalent about. Yeah. I wanted all three of my pregnancies. And also I get it because even pregnancies you want that you're not ambivalent about the child, like you're planning the child. It's still like, 
oh, like you just see right. it all stretched out in front of you. The carrying right. the baby, the delivering the baby, the newborns, toddlers. Toddlers are terrible creatures. They just are. That's they why are they terrible. make them so cute. They're terrible. They're yeah, bad. Terrible. They're little terrorists. I, and, I, I, yeah. I want to give my children away at mobility and take them back. back. I want to give them to my mom when they're, when they're mobile, and then I want to take them back when they're three and a half. And they Toddler boarding school. This should be a thing. I feel very sure about this. <laughs> And so like, it's just, if you can't recognize like that, like there, this is it. And it's not even like, it's not even just the pregnancy and birth. And the fact that like, for some women, when they say, we'll make the sacrifice, well, that sacrifice might be their job and the ability to feed other children. You know, like that's like, we have to really lay that out and deal with that. And that you have that kid forever. It's not just, um, even if you give them up for adoption, that's still a part of your life story. Right. I think like that just, you know, women, like, again, like you said, like who can't acknowledge the complexity of the impact on your life and the sort of ambivalence that even with wounded pregnancies, you can kind of face and like, because that's why I think that's why first pregnancies and it breaks my heart that some, nobody gets, not everybody gets this experience, but like, that's why first pregnancies are so precious because you don't know what's coming and you can never get back to that space. Right? No. Ignorance is bliss, y'all. It is. It really, really is. In that And I think for my side, like I've seen you like really like, I think, I don't know if shift's the right word, but just like grow in complexity with, with regards to sort of the legal issues. And I think I've really seen the, the moral complexity of it. And I think, you know, I'll never forget, like when I lost my pregnancy at 20 weeks. Oh my gosh. And then I said, like, I just feel like it's different for somebody with a miscarriage. I feel like I would never compare this to somebody who had a stillborn. I would never compare this to somebody. If I had a stillborn, I wouldn't compare it to somebody who loses a child at five. And I remember you saying, yeah, but we can't take like the level of grief as a, as an objective value of human life. And I was like, that's a good point. (laughs) And here's the thing too, like, um, my grief when I lost my pregnancy was different than what I watched a friend of mine go through. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so interesting to me because I'm part of this, um, it's a, I don't think it's just Catholic women, but it's um, a pregnancy loss Facebook group that a friend of mine um, had added me to shortly after um, that. And some women who lose babies at eight weeks are devastated, yeah. just devastated. And it's just really hard. Like, I don't, I didn't feel that attached, but yeah. and, and honestly, my husband did. He was devastated. Yeah. in a way that I didn't understand. But, and I think too, it was because I kind of knew, I knew something was not right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I had emotionally detached myself at that point when I realized I'm not feeling this baby move, something is going on, something yeah. is not right, you know? And I mean, I got, of course you go through all the crazy scenarios in your head, but I mean, he was, he was devastated. Especially when I your best friend had lost a baby at exact same moment, a mere, mere, yeah. year, mere months before it was wild. And not, and not just you, Sarah, like I had two other friends who lost babies after, I feel like anything after 12 weeks, like you, you let your guard down, right? You're yeah. like, oh, I heartbeat at 12 weeks. I'm good. Yeah. And you, you kind of move on. Okay. I'm, I'm starting to think about, you know, other things. How is this going to impact my family? How is, you know, yeah. what's going to happen next? And and then, and then that's not what's happening. Anyway, I had people, God gives me people. Yeah. That's, that's how God works in my life is he gives me people to call and he puts them into my head at just the right moments. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I had the same experience. I did not feel it. The way, I did not impact me the way other could. And I, when you said that, I was like, she's right. And I think that's putting yeah. the, you know, I, I think separating the conversation was like separating what we were talking about was really helpful. And then realizing like, 
because of the complexity of that articulation, like that we can't use, there's really no objective way to do this, to, to, to draw a line that will work ethically for everyone within the judicial system, right? That's the problem is, you know, you draw, because you feel like there's no, like the grief is not a good level. And because you feel like due to your faith, there, there is a line that needs to be drawn, you draw it at conception. Well, because I'm much more comfortable not drawing a line ethically and saying, I don't actually need to know. I don't, I don't need to have an answer. Right. There is a continuum and I don't need to place a dot on it. It's just not up to me. So right. to me, like, that's what helped me put together. And I don't know about you, like the different, the, the way I articulate my beliefs about being pro-choice legally is like, because there it's impossible to draw the line for everybody, then we should let everybody right. draw the line for themselves. Because what do you want a right. government panel deciding? Like, that right. seems like a bad plan. I always tell people I feel very libertarian about, mm. <laughs> about abortion. I don't think that we should make laws that judge morals in other people's lives mm -hmm. uh, because I don't think that's the role of the government. So th I think that's why I'm a little bit more comfortable with leaving Roe v. Wade the way it is. Um, yeah. And I liked RBG's standpoint of we need to leave this up to the states. I like that too. Actually, in, in preparation for this, um, I hadn't even told Shelly that uh, – I was doing this and uh Shelly's Elizabeth's husband, everyone, just PS. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but he had some Apple News story come across that was about German abortion law. So I looked it up. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, because you're living in Germany right now. Yes, yes, we live in Germany. And um, um a friend of mine here actually told me so this woman has children, my children, my older children's ages, but when she became pregnant with her first child, they had thought that they weren't having children. They weren't able to have children. And the, she went into the German doctor and they said, Oh, this is a surprise. Do we need to do something about it? <laughs> and she was like, no, no, um, I'm fine with it. And, and it was just like, she said it was presented in a very matter of fact way, but it sort of blindsided her because she yeah. said, you know, in the U S you would never, you would never hear that. However, when, when Shelly was talking to me about this article he came across, he was like, you know, in Germany, you can't have an abortion after 12 weeks. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because I, I personally, for me, I think that's a good line if you're going to make lines, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it's well in, in advance of viability. Um, yeah. And viability, I feel like it's such a moving line. But anyway, so very moving. I looked it up. And in fact, it is 12 weeks. And it's fascinating. So abortion is actually punishable under German law under section 218. But then in section 218A, it provides um, exemptions to this. Right. And I haven't read the actual um, law. But my understanding is that it's like, in whatever circumstances you find yourself, you give some sort of reasoning, and then you it can do this up to 12 weeks. Well, then apparently recently in the last year, I feel like this was fall of 2019, there was another article that talked about section 219. And 219 is a Nazi era law that actually um, has some sort of um, criminal punishment for performers and recipients of abortion. Wow. And the right, um, right, wing, I'm going to say, right-wing activists in Germany have been sort of um, bringing this up. And there was an abortion doctor, Christine Hemmel, I think is her name, it's H-A-M-E-L, um, was actually fined 6,000 euro um, for advertising. Oh, no, I guess it's about advertising. I can't remember. Anyway, there's laws. If you want to know, Sarah, you can look them up. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just looked it up and it said it's illegal under 218, but de simultaneously decriminalized under Section 218A. So okay. it's saying it's illegal, but you won't get punished for it. And it is up to the first trimester. And But there are exemptions for in the condition of mandatory counseling and com 
um, permitted in later in pregnancy under like certain exceptions. Well, and you know what, when you said that, I thought, well, of course they consider it at 12 weeks because you walk into a doctor's office and they handle it matter of factly. And you don't like, you don't, the reason so many times I think people get pushed past 12 weeks is because they're in States where they can't get somewhere or they're in families. They're terrified to tell. It's like, you know, they're in this situation where they're caught in a corner and they wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. It's the same way how I feel about emergency contraception. Well, first of all, I don't think emergency contraception ever prevents pregnancy. I think science can't prove a negative. So they can't say definitively, never, ever, never, ever will it disrupt a fertilized egg. So they have to say, well, it could, but you know how to keep it from ever maybe doing that. P.S. I don't think it could is to give it sooner. But if you make it harder to get, then you're actually increasing the chances that it would disrupt a fertilized egg versus just disrupt, you know, the process. Like that's the stuff that wears me out. It's like you said, like if you want to do stuff that prevents abortion, then you don't make it harder to get birth control. You don't make it harder to get abortion in the first trimester. Right. Yeah. That too, that making it hard to get birth control, which again, as a Catholic, I'm not real pro birth control, but I think most Christian denominations are, first of all. And then wh- why do we leave it up to our employers to decide our health insurance? Oh, I could go off on it. Well, yeah, that's a, that, that is definitely the compromise, Beth, and I've had to. And that's so funny, too, because, like, you, you're, you like, a Catholic. I'm, meanwhile, over here working at Planned Parenthood, and we're both, like, Right? Yeah. Birth control is the devil. Like, we don't – neither of us take it. It's not the devil. I know it's very important for some people's health care. But, but in our friendship, it has been a, a point of agreement that it does not work well it definitely doesn't work well for my particular home hormones. And I think you're the first person that was like, your period's not the big, the end of your cycle. It's the beginning. I don't know why they set up birth control like that. It's like so deliberately like miseducating people. Yeah. Well, and I think it too, in the United States, we make all of women's health about sex. And mm. that is so hugely problematic in so many ways for That's so, so many true. Reasons. That is so true. I, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I thought, what, you know, they make this big deal about we have to teach abstinence only, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, why do we not teach this stuff in biology? Yeah. Anyway, I, it just wears me out. Like this can be part of a science class and be less ridiculous, but. Oh, you need to listen to my friend, um, Aaron Moon's podcast. She just did one on Faith Adjacent about purity culture. It was so good. And she just talked about like, you know, there can be sexual ethics. There should be sexual right? ethics. But, yes. that, but they should not revolve around fear and shame. Like mm-hmm. that should not be the motivating value when you're trying to teach your child a sexual ethic, like, or to just right. to articulate your own sexual ethic, you know, like this right. kind of purity, disgust, being tainted, fear, shame, all that stuff. Like it's so toxic. And it's like, nobody, I don't even know how the most pro-life, hardcore, overturned Roe v. Wade person could look at our culture surrounding birth, pregnancy, sex, any event, and be like, man, we're killing it. We're doing such a good job. <laughs> no, I, don't, I, I would like to think nobody, but mm, there's probably people that do. Well, so here's that. another fun German statistic I read yesterday that if America had German's mortality rate for COVID-19, 140,000 fewer Americans would be dead. Oh, wow. Is that not crazy? That is, that is kind of crazy. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of Americans. Okay, so as you look back over our 20 plus years of conversations about this, this topic that seems to uh, tear everybody else apart, what's your, let's do high and lows like we do with our kids. What was your low in this conversation or debate and what's your high? Like, where do you feel like you're sitting now? I don't know that I have one. I will say that in our conversations, I think one of the best conversations we had was in our, we were walking through my neighborhood on the horse trips and uh, we were talking about kind of the like, 
I think we were stuck. We were talking past one another. And I said, well, when you say alive, I mm. mean, it's a human life. Science is not arguing whether the life inside this woman is a human life or not. And so when you say alive, I don't like that language. If you want to say that the baby doesn't have, or the, the unborn human doesn't have moral status. Okay. I, I can, I can. Cause you were more. like, cause it, that's the one where you were like, your liver is alive. Right. Your kidneys yeah. are alive. Yeah. Right. I really, I struggle with the language because I, I, you know, I don't like that language. So we, I really felt like we had a meeting of the minds. And sometimes now I hear you adjust your language and I'm like, oh man, that's totally a part of that conversation. And so I think that was one of those times where we, we really hurt each other and understood, like I understood where you were coming from mm. and still we were taught anyway, I just thought that was a really great one. And then I think I got frustrated with you. Um, we were having dinner in Paducah one night and it was just you and me that uh, Nicholas had gone to get Shelly or something crazy. We, we did something crazy. And, uh, we do that from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> we make crazy travel plans. It's our waitress. I remember we had golden beets and that's kind of random, but the waitress like walked up and then heard what our conversation was and walked away. And we were like, no, 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 we, we discussed it. But it was funny because we were really heated. We were really heated. Yeah. But it, the next morning, I think you tried to reintroduce the conversation. I was like, nope, I'm all done. I was having one of those me and Aaron moments. I was like, nope, I had that conversation last night. I'm all done with it. Um, so I would say well, that. You know, I think for me, what I see over and over again is like, I hear something and it, it like, you know, it pushes every button for me. I'm like, it's clicking and I'm clicking and my mind goes, yeah, but you better run it by Elizabeth because it might not click for her. And if it doesn't click for her, then we got a problem. Got a problem. It's, not, it's not universal. So, I mean, there's, it's like, I have a running list in my head. Well, I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to see what Elizabeth thinks about this one. Cause this makes a lot of sense to me, but if it doesn't make right. a lot of sense to her, then there's not something clearly not universal about it. Well, and I think too, I think one of the ways to really, that we've gotten good at talking to one another about this is realizing that there's a bigger picture here, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I tell, I've, I've told a group of girlfriends um, that's one of the things that I have to realize. And I know you, Beth, you and Beth have talked about this, like your opinions differ about how to get places, but oftentimes your goals are the same. So like you and I want to raise happy, healthy kids who are well-educated mm -hmm. and who have moral boundaries mm -hmm. and have a faith, right? Yeah. Yep. And you can fit like a very strongly pro-choice mindset into that framework. Yeah. And I can fit a very strongly pro-life mindset into that framework. So clearly we can come at these things from different ways and you are not a terrible person. I know this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I am think, in fact, not a terrible person, <laughs> right? but I think that sometimes we lose sight of that and it yeah. is vitally important that we remember that that is more, that is so much bigger than the opinions that we have. And yeah, anyway. Well, that's why I love that non, I think about that nonviolent communication book I read recently where he said, if you are disagreeing, it's not about values, it's about strategies because values are universal. Right. And so, you know, everybody wants their kids to be better off. Now, some people think that's by, uh, you know, securing a white supremacist state. Clearly we differ on the strategy to get there. Right. Um, and their strategy is in fact dangerous and needs some nice boundaries around it. But like, I just think that that's the, you know, when you can find those universal values, but I think, you know, I think the, the question is, it's like, I, I just told my mom, we were talking about this, who wins when we're all fighting about gay marriage and abortion? Exactly. Who's, who's got something we have, we, we're, when we're all turning on each other over these topics, 
who's actually benefiting? Because I don't think it's uh, unborn fetuses. I don't think it's uh, heterosexuality. I don't think it's the Catholic Church under really any any guideline or the church at all, any church. So who is who is benefiting? Like everybody stop and ask yourself, who is actually benefiting? Right. When we're fighting each other about this and turning on each other about this. I don't know. I don't know. No. I mean, it's the people in power. I can tell you that much. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and I think too, the way that you and Beth talk about both ends. Mm-hmm. I, I love the both and. I have used that so many times recently. I've used it with, I mean, Louisville is my hometown and it is burning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, literally and figurative. Well, figuratively all the time and literally sometimes. Um, and I'm so sad for it. Mm-hmm. And there's so much both and there. Yeah. And Gosh, I mean, I feel really bad for that attorney general there. Um, I think that guy is a guy with a heart for, he wants to go far in service. And I think he really has a heart for, I want to do this. I want to be, I want to do good work. I see that in him. And right now in the situation that he's in, it's not decisions he's even made. And he has to put them forth and they've got police around him. And I I feel really, really bad for him. Um, And I feel terrible for Breonna Taylor's mom and for her boyfriend. I mean, oh my gosh, just what a terrible situation for, you know, someone in my family said, well, she dated a bad guy. And I said, okay, so no, no, no. For dating a bad guy? No. In our beds, in our homes. Yeah. For a drug charge that they didn't even find there. I think that that, you know, and I think, you know, you, you have much more grace for Daniel Cameron than I do because he is a. Mitch McConnell acolyte. And so that taints him. Oh, I'm sure. Well, you know, we try to get there any way we can. That's true. And I think, but I think like, you know, the idea that you have to choose caring about racial justice or, you know, caring about order. I hate using the word order. See, like you can't even say law and order. I'm going to say rule of law. Um, because I think Donald Trump is a bigger threat to rule of law than the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, agree on that for sure. Like, you know, I think that that, that it's again, it's the, it's the th- same thing that people who benefits when they tell us it's a binary and we have to choose. Because it's not. Right. When they it's say not. like, you have to choose, you're either pro-life or pro-choice and you're an enemy of the other person. Like, that's just not true. It's just not true. And the idea that like, well, you either still want police in your community or you're a racist. Like, no, I don't know. I think that that's, that's a false choice. That's a definitely a false choice. Like, I think that, and putting it to people like that, who benefits when they make that cho- choice stark and they tell you anybody who disagrees with you is your enemy. Right. And I think, I think maybe that's what, that's the upshot of all of it. All of it, abortion, all of what's going on is that there's so much gray and we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't yeah. want to acknowledge we, we want it to be easy. We want it to be black and white. Actually, I can hear one of the people on the committee that decides at, at Transylvania, they have a committee that decides whether you get to be recommended for medical school or not. And at, there, I was planning to go to medical school and I ended up deciding not to, but um, that committee, one of the members said, you're too black and white. Mm. Told me that. And I would say, you know, if you were listening to this today, I would think he would say, wow, you've really gone into a shade of gray. And the thing is like, you can have personal blacks and whites. Yeah. Right. You can, um, until your blacks and whites start mess, you know, blending with those around you. Yeah. And the reality of the, of the thing is, if you want this great American experience experiment to succeed, there's going to have to be a lot of gray, you know, I mean, like, 
you know, read these biographies of our founding fathers. There's going to be a lot of gray, y'all. There just has to be. There has to be. Well, and that's what I tell, you know, this, I told you this already, but this guy from my past rolled up into my DMs and Instagram about abortion and was like, it's just unfathomable to me that people would feel this way. And I want to be like, well, it shouldn't be because it's literally like half of America disagrees with you on this. So that should give you pause. Like it gives me pause that so many people vote for Donald Trump because it is unfathomable to me that people vote for him, but they do. And so I need to think about why and if there's anything I'm missing and right. not decide that it's just because they're all amoral psychopaths. I don't believe every person that votes for Donald Trump right. is an amoral psychopath. No. I believe they, he is an amoral psychopath. Right. <laughs> right? It's, it's hard, but sometimes I think it's hard to pull out. And I think this is such a unique time in our history right now because we haven't, I don't feel like we've had something like this before. You know, I've never voted differently than my parents before. And, and that's not true. I voted differently for my parents the last time, but you know, I just don't, I think this is one of those times where we have to really look hard and think hard about what do we, you know, what are our, what are our long-term goals here? And let's not sacrifice Mm -hmm. um, relationships and family and, all of these things for this thing that's going to last four years, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, four years is short because in the military, you do everything for four years. It's a short period of time. Yeah. Anyway. Well, friend, thank you for having these conversations with me for so long and for being my friend. Oh my gosh. And I was much less agreeable to argue with. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This has been um, a wonderful 20 years. I'm planning to do it for at least another 20 more. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. We get closer to 60. I want to be hundred. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay. We did it. See, that was easy. Eric, thanks for sitting down to talk with me in front of people. I feel like we talk all the time, but it's a different thing when we're in front of an audience. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's totally a pleasure. And I love to uh, hear you, especially on the show and, for the little sidebars we have sometimes too. It's, it's been super wonderful to do that. So thank you. Can you just introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Eric and I run a page on social media that advocates for responsible citizens to uh, stay armed and protected, uh, mostly around the subject of concealed carry. I try to focus on helping people have a good mindset around self-defense and encouraging uh, proper training so that we can have a uh, safer, uh, less dangerous society. So you reached out to us on Instagram, I think, and we started talking. And I found myself really interested in having conversations with you because, one, I could tell that you actually listened to the show. like more than once before emailing us, um, which doesn't (laughs) often happen, you know? And, um, and so I thought like, here's somebody who I I can tell like really strongly disagrees with where we are on gun regulation, but is invested enough to talk with us about that in a way that enhances my understanding of how I feel of how other people feel about this. And so it's really been a great conversation, um, over a pretty long period of time now. And I want to ask you, like, when you first reached out, kind of what your intention was and how you think our conversations have, have been unfolding. How's this going for you? 
Sure, absolutely. Well, I first caught wind of your show because a friend of mine at work at the time, I think this was just prior to the last election, and a friend of uh, of mine at work had said, I think you would like these two ladies. One of them is right-leaning and one of them is left-leaning. And she knew that I was really trying to understand uh, other people's points of view a lot more broadly than than I would if I just let myself hang out in my own social media bubble. Um, and so I started listening to your show. And uh, sure enough, you two have a different point of view on a lot of things than I do. And sometimes I really appreciate it. And sometimes it drives me a little bananas. And I think that's good. We should all listen to other people that think things that we don't sometimes. As far as the first time we reached out, I don't really remember. It was probably something gun related where there was something that was said about a point of view that, that I felt strongly about. And so I just kind of gingerly tried to reach out and said, hey, I noticed you said this thing. Uh, you're probably much too busy to, to have a dialogue with me. But in case I'm wrong, here's what I think. And ever since then, you've been super gracious. And we've had a uh, a really nice conversation that goes, you know, intermittently here and there. Um, so it's been wonderful. So I want to be really upfront with everybody listening, because I think sometimes when we're like, hey, we're talking across some kind of deep dividing line. And I don't really think of guns as a super partisan issue, although I know that it is portrayed that way sometimes. But I know lots of gun owners who are Democrats as well as Republicans. Um, but when I, I think when we're talking about like, hey, we're, we're, we're talking across this chasm, there's an expectation that it gets tied up really neatly with a bow. And we say, here's all this compromise that we've reached. And you and I have been talking for a while in a good amount of depth, and we have not reached any compromise. Um, I think what has happened for me, at least, and I'm really interested to hear what you think about this, I feel like I have distilled why I am where I am on the Second Amendment. And I feel like I have a much better understanding of the complexity of gun culture and the different perspectives people bring to their feelings about the Second Amendment. And I think that's really worthwhile. And I don't feel like I've learned everything I can learn about those topics. I also don't see myself changing my mind and thinking like, yes, we should have a largely unrestricted right to bear arms in this country. But it's been very helpful and clarifying to me to speak with you about it. Yeah, and I've really appreciated that too. You know, something that I have learned about you over the course of our conversation is you are um, a very gentle soul. And I think that if everyone in the whole entire world were, were more like Beth in that way, as far as you being thoughtful and considerate of others and so many other things, I think we'd have a much improved society. Um, and I say that without reservation. Thank you. Um, and, oh, you're totally welcome. And, um, Unfortunately, at least from my perspective, I think there are people out there that are willing to take advantage of others to a degree that sometimes includes violence and are disrespectful of, of other people's persons and uh, personal liberty to a degree that sometimes includes violence. And unfortunately, I find myself often speaking with people who are very intelligent that also have somehow decided or begun to believe that the ability to call 911 from their cell phone is all of the protection they need against someone who might decide to be a violent attacker against them. The problem is, is a lot of times when there's a determined violent attacker 
um, the police sadly play more of a role of a cleanup crew than anything else. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's a very important human and moral right for each of us to be able to decide if we're going to put the time and effort into uh, being armed and uh, protecting our own persons and loved ones. So um, I think maybe there are some difference in your temperament and my temperament that means that uh, we might not ever agree. Beth, I don't ever see you strapping on a gun and saying, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no. But like, I also no, think um, um, it's helped me to understand that that is first and foremost how you see it, that it that you see yourself first as a protector, because I look at guns and and my bias toward them is to look at them and think offense. And you have helped me understand that that probably more people than not look at guns and first see defense. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think that's true. I think a lot of people are motivated. I tell you what, I grew up in a household where. Uh, my dad owned several firearms, and I was never really into them. I kind of thought it was the amount of tension that he poured into it was maybe a little excessive. Um, but I had an experience as a young man where someone, um, as a young man at my parents' house, when it was just myself, my mother, and my two very much younger sisters home, where someone broke into our house and was stealing things. Um, and that man once he saw that there were people home and that my mother was the first person he saw, he started to go after her. And luckily, if I can use the word like that, I was able to, without, with only a display of force um, and without firing a single shot, I was able to access a gun that I knew my dad had hidden nearby in a, in a safe place and just ask him to politely to um, put back our possessions and, and leave the home. And so that was, that was a wonderful uh, result from a very bad situation. And I'm super grateful that it turned out the way that it did. Yeah. And, you know, my husband has a similar experience in his background. And I and I think that he views this similarly. He would like us to have a gun in our home. And we talk about this quite a bit. And something that our conversations, my conversations both with him and with you, Eric, have have helped me think about is like, I'm not sure you can talk about the Second Amendment and about gun ownership without really probing kind of your fundamental views on human nature and and like what risks you're willing to take in life. And that gets to some pretty core tenets. I mean, I feel like the reason that you talk about me as a gentle soul is because we kind of keep circling around to this point that, like, I just don't think if I had a gun, I could pull the trigger. Like, I I think I would rather lose my life than take someone's in just about any circumstance. And I'm not saying that's admirable. That's that's just kind of where my life experience leads me. And I feel like where you're coming from is looking at yourself less as a self and more as sort of guardian of your family and and people that you love and that owning a gun for you is an act of generosity toward people like me who couldn't pull the trigger. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the um, just hopefully this isn't too much of an aside, but the concept that I built my page around is one uh, that wasn't uh, pioneered by myself. It was actually popularized by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who's an excellent, excellent man, a, a Christian, a, a believer, and just a very um, 
heartfelt person. I really like his take on things. And he wrote a book that I read once upon a time, uh, recommended me to me by a friend called On Combat. And he talks about the psychological and the physiological effects of combat on people. And I read it. I was kind of a little bit outside the sphere when I read it, so I was interested uh, by my friend's recommendation. And he talks about how in the world there's three types of people. Um, the sheep are the gentle people who are nice, and if everyone were more like that, we'd have a better world because people, these kinds of people don't want to be violent to anyone. He talks some people are wolves and will um, gladly take advantage of others, including uh, using violence. And then other people are sheepdogs, which uh, are those who are willing to uh, protect others, even if it means uh, doing so violently against those that, you know, that, that would hurt you unwarrantedly. Um, and so I really like that concept, and that's kind of what I think of myself as. Um, another thing I wanted to add on to what you said is I hear this from a lot of people that they're really worried about the risks that come with, you know, you're not so interested in owning a firearm, but your husband is. I'm pretty sure that most years, the total amount of firearm deaths, and we can cite some facts from the FBI and from other things if we need to in the show notes. Firearm deaths are more or less roughly around the same amount of deaths that um, are caused by vehicle crashes every year. And with guns, usually when somebody dies, there's very few accidental deaths. Usually when somebody dies, it's intentional. With vehicles, when somebody dies, um, it's almost always accidental. So I think that if you own a vehicle and drive around it with your family, statistics show that we're just about as likely to have a death in your car than we are as we are with a firearm. So I think if we can kind of measure those risks together and say, are guns really as scary as, as I feel like they are? I think that's a really good way to take the perspective and maybe uh, put our minds at ease a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring up that comparison because I think my experience with a vehicle crash is informs substantially how I feel about guns. And it's a substantial component of why that risk is unacceptable to me, because, you know, having been part of an accident where there was a fatality, there is nothing that I did in that day of driving that was worth this stranger's life to me. And all of the grief and heartache it caused for his family and the trauma that it's caused in my life. There's just nothing about that that makes that risk acceptable to me. I still drive a car because I live in an area where I feel like I have to to live my life. Uh, but I would happily be in a place where I never drove a car again if I could eliminate that risk. Because I understand the statistics of it, but I also feel like... When it happens, it is so unacceptable and it feels so unnecessary to me. So I want to like zoom out for a second and say, conceptually, yeah. as we talk about how we have these conversations, I think it's been really helpful and healthy to have this level of discussion with you because sometimes when we're trying to talk with people about this stuff, we like go immediately to the policy and it's never like really about the policy as much as it is starting like with that foundation of what are the emotions and the life experiences and just the kind of orientation you bring to the subject. And so I have verbalized in my conversations with you more than I think anywhere else, like what my orientation is and understanding yours has helped me a little better understand where you come out on policy. Um, 
so I want to pause there and let you react to that before I like take us into policy. <laughs> well, yeah, no, uh, I, I we, you and I feel very different on on policy on that, and I really like speaking about that. I remember listening to one of your episodes after you and I had had a conversation. You said I speak to this guy sometimes, and he's he's a big Second Amendment advocate, or however you put it, and you said, and pretty much all of the policies that I want to enact either says it would be ineffective or unconstitutional or I forget what the third one you gave, but I was like, yeah, that's a pretty fair, that's a pretty fair assessment. I think the thing that, um, that I have learned about you with policy is that because you so value this right, I think there is not a restriction on the right that strikes you as anything other than arbitrary. Is that fair? Um, maybe there, there are some very few restrictions that strike me as not arbitrary. For example, um, I don't think violent criminals should have guns. I think their access should be as restricted as is possible. As we know, it's not always very possible. And sometimes you're banging your head against a wall trying to figure out how to make policies act, uh, have the result that you, that you put them in place for. Um, but other than that, um, there's not a lot of restrictions that I think people should have when it comes to their constitutional, their natural given constitutionally affirmed right to defend themselves. Yes, you're correct. So when you think violent criminal, I want to talk for a second about red flag laws and domestic violence and what you think about that. Red flag laws. Can we just define what we mean when we say red flag laws? Yeah. So, you know, I'm thinking specifically of Senator Klobuchar's interest in closing the boyfriend loophole and this idea that domestic violence can happen between people who are not married and there still be a need based on some kind of domestic court order to flag someone as having the potential to do violence. And this limit their ability to purchase the firearms. So are we talking about Two people in a, are in a relationship. Uh, they're not married, just boyfriend, girlfriend kind of thing. And he gets violent with her. I'm going to put it in that direction because it's almost always the male who's the aggressor, right? Um, he gets violent with her. Should his uh, rights to own a firearm or purchase one be restricted? Is that mm -hmm. the question? That's my question. Yeah. Well, once he's committed a violent act, we have the due process in place to say, you have done this bad thing. Therefore, you lose your rights. And so sometimes when he commits that violent act, he doesn't get convicted of a crime. He gets a, a restraining order or something entered or a, a do not contact order. Does that matter to you? And well, um, yeah, that matters to me. That matters. Uh, do we have a, a good outcome in a situation like that through how our legal system works? Well, I mean... Not always. Like, I mean, I, I no, wonder if that always. matters in terms of the, the constitutional right restriction. I mean, there, there are lots of reasons that you end up not getting a criminal conviction in a, in a case like that, including that the victim decides not to press charges. But we still know that we have a person with propensity toward violence. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like, how clear, because this comes up all the time going back to the value side. The, your your view of the world is like sheep, sheep, dog, wolf. I always want to add a category um, 
because I don't feel like there are that many people who are clearly wolves, but I feel like there are a lot of people who um, could be either sheep or sheepdog, but have been left behind in so many ways. Oh, yeah. Um, that, and their we life feels so sure. precarious, <laughs> you know, that, that they're, they're, they are brought to acts of violence that they otherwise would not commit. So, I mean, that's, I think that's where I'm going with this. Like, I always struggle when you and I are talking with categorically defining people as violent. And at the same time, I agree with you that once we know a person has capacity to illegally do violence, we need to exercise care in allowing them to arm themselves. So I I just struggle with def- like defining the categories. You know what I mean? And it is a hard category to define because if we if we do it wrong, we're going to infringe upon the rights of a lot of people who otherwise would have never caused any, any violence. Um, and if we do it wrong on the opposite side of the spectrum, we're going to allow easy access to people who are very likely to do violence. The thing that I like to compare this to in my mind are other rights that we have. The right to um, freedom of speech is one that I go to. Under what circumstances do we say to someone, you cannot participate in our political system? The founders put freedom of speech right up there with the right to keep and bear arms because they knew they were both so, so important. So I lean a lot on due process, and there's definitely a lot. Uh, that happens in our justice system that maybe needs to be fixed. Um, But at this point, I would really hate to see people be restricted uh, with their rights to protect themselves because there's a lack of, because some red flag law gets passed that provides a lack of due process that results in someone's rights being just taken away. Um, I think that if perhaps there are situations where someone has exhibited really violent behaviors towards others. Maybe we can put them on a temporary hold. Maybe legislation like that wouldn't be completely inappropriate, but there needs to be some due process there. I understand a little bit about like some no-fly restrictions can be very just like, oh, you're on the list. We can't tell you why. Good luck getting yourself off the list, right? There's not a lot of due process. And I feel like that's a big problem. And I would hate to see lack of due process enter into any other Uh, phase in life. You know, it's really important to you guys that everyone vote, right? Yes, it's very important to me that, that, I'm sorry, I don't know if you're like just taking a breath, but yes, it's very important (laughs) to me that everyone vote. Yeah, it's very important that everyone votes. Um, And I think that even sometimes some people that have done really horrible things in their life, um, they should have the right to vote restored at some point if we can be reasonably sure that they're past that point in their life where they're doing terrible things. Um, I would hate to see somebody say, well, you have to take this test before you can vote. Although I do want voters to be informed, but I'd hate to see them say, you have to take this test before you can vote. And if a panel decides you're unfit to vote, you don't get to cast your ballot. I see gun ownership in much that same light. So I want to just call out, like, as an example here, that I always find it more helpful when we're having these policy conversations to do what we're doing now, which is is not really, like, overloading each other with, like, here's what I know about the history of the Second Amendment or here's what I know about the facts and the stats. I find it more fruitful in our conversations to do this just, like, personal back and forth where neither of us is trying to persuade the other one and we're not putting every card on the table that we have about, like, here's why I'm right. But there is more of a sense of 
just help me understand where you are. Let's try to fill in as many gaps as possible here. Now, I know that I frustrate you because I leave a lot of gaps in our conversation. You want to talk about that for a second? (laughs) When we think about what doesn't work well in our chats, I feel like I frustrate you sometimes because I am not willing to like nail down certain specifics. I want to own up to that, Eric. (laughs) Well, no, I don't know that so much you as usually when we're talking um, I'm much more long-winded and less concise than you. The listeners will possibly have noticed that by now. Um, and so sometimes I, I feel like I just probably include too much in what I say, and then you don't get to it all and you respond. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that I get frustrated with you in that regard, more that I just get frustrated with myself for being so long-winded. Well, I do also feel though, <laughs> like sometimes you're looking for me to articulate more clarity around what I think the Second Amendment should mean than I, than I will. And I think that's a fair ask on your part. And and the reason I bring this up for purposes of like a broader audience is to say like there are things that I just am genuinely conflicted about because I am Thanks. persuaded that it's fine for for you to have a gun in your house and and for us to have a gun in our house if that's where we landed as a family. Um and for most people to have a gun in their houses, if that's where they wanted to be in terms of personal protection. Um, but I don't think it's fine to have the sheer volume of guns walking around in this country that we have. And I worry about our attitude around violence in the country. And I worry that we're very dismissive of these incredibly painful mass shootings and unwilling to explore all of the reasons that they occur because if we're if we're people who say like yes everyone has a right to have a gun then we just say well like look it's that's so rare honestly without kind of grappling with the hard magnitude of it and so i i do feel a lot of conflict about how do we tackle these issues in a principled way i don't want to overcriminalize like i think one place that you and i do have a lot of commonality of viewpoint is in a more libertarian perspective on allowing people to have freedom from state overreach. And so I struggle and and I can't crisply tell you what I think the Second Amendment ought to mean. And I and I think that's hard sometimes. And it's a fair ask on your part for me to do that. And I'm sure it's frustrating that I don't. (laughs) Well, you know what? We don't have all the answers. And I think the people that think they have all the answers are unfortunately deceiving themselves. So um, that's okay that we don't always feel like we know all the answers to everything. I want to touch on something you said, though, specifically. You said that one of your concerns is the sheer number of guns we have in our country. Yeah, I'm concerned about that. I, I mean, I, it's a right. lot, right? We have a lot of guns in this country. Yeah, we do. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I want to ask you, I want to make a statement and see if you kind of agree with the statement. Um, even very pr- proficient shooters are only able to accurately operate one single firearm at a time. I accept that as true. I have no idea. <laughs> that makes sense to I me. Think it is. I think yeah, I, I accept. <laughs> I defer to your expertise on that, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you'll see these guys that are like the old Western cowboy revolver guys that can shoot two of them. But, but those are, you never see that in, in real life. You don't see people in the military or anything in real life situations or that. So yeah, we can say that's true. I see it in much the same way as somebody might see a pair of shoes or a vehicle. How many cars can you drive? Do you really need that many cars? Jay Leno has how many cars? Does he really need that many? 
who cares whether or not he needs that many? This is America. We're free to have as many as we want, right? You can only drive one car at a time. So if I have 12 cars parked in my big garage or one car, I guess I, I don't really understand why that's anyone's business. How do you feel about that analogy? I get it. And I also think that it, um, where I always struggle with, with that kind of pushback from you is just, it feels deliberately detached from the fact that guns have like a purpose one and and that purpose is to do violence and vehicles do violence but that is not their singular purpose and so to me when i when i think about the risks again and the volume i struggle with accepting that argument just on its face because i feel like why do you need so many things that have this single purpose to do violence, especially if, if we're purely having them as a protective measure? Why? Why so many yeah. when there is when there is the potential for an accidental shooting, when there is so much concern about suicide and people's access to what like I just I look at that and think, yeah, but like, where's the upside of having all of those guns? <laughs> well, well, that's true. Um, and I can understand your concern there. We we already kind of touched on this a little bit where um, vehicles have many purposes. Guns, one purpose, whether it's uh, offense or defense, is to do violence. You're right. Um, but yet we have very similar death rates in the United States every year between uh, gun deaths and vehicle deaths. So I don't know. Um, there's a lot of ways to get around town. But if you need to defend yourself, the very best tool for the job is a gun. And there are some instances in which no other tool will do the job as well as a gun. A knife can be very, very deadly. In fact, in the United States every year, um, there are more deaths, this is per the FBI's website, by knives than there are by all different kinds of firearms together, handguns, rifles, shotguns, etc. Right? A knife is plenty deadly. But if someone comes at you with a knife, the best way you can be safe in a situation like that is to respond with a gun. So I think the moral fabric, again, for this comes to me down to me as uh, a gun is the only tool for the job when no other tool will do the job. And but I feel like there's a lot of moral strength in that. I get that. I just don't understand why you need more than one then, you know, if it's that effective oh, right. and you can only handle one at a time. Like, why? why do we have... And, and you know, a gun is pretty effective, right. even if it's not like a gun that fires exceptionally fast or that has a silencer on it. Like there's and I and I want to say to you, I want to acknowledge that that sportsmanship around guns is a thing. Don't don't email me. I understand that. Um, but again, it takes me to Sarah, like, Sarah why, would say, don't at me. Don't yeah, at me, y'all. <laughs> why? Why the volume? Why, when? along that moral argument why the volume you know and and why the range because you you don't like we should say you don't like restrictions around specific categories of firearms because they seem arbitrary is that a fair summary of your position oh absolutely i see a lot of things um and Beth, if you decide to edit this part out joe biden said he wanted to take away everyone's ar-14s there's no such gun it's an ar-15 and i see a lot of people making big statements about this 
that show by the kinds of words that they use a lot of ignorance around the topic. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie with lawyers doing lawyer things in them and you go, oh my goodness, it's not like that at all. For this sure. Like they, they don't even do lawyer things in movies ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. How much paperwork do you see in movies with right. lawyers? Huh? <laughs> not that much. Um, and as far as your question towards um, how many guns does somebody need in their home, if I was being strictly someone who was saying, I'm going to buy as many firearms as I need to feel safe in my home and none else, I think the answer to your question there um, is to consider the layout of your home and to consider if something, if there's going to be a break-in, where can these break-ins occur? And where can I get a firearm with the best and with, you know, the fastest access that's stored in a safe place in order to protect myself? If you're in your office uh, upstairs and somebody breaks in downstairs, you'd better have a firearm within easy access between point A and point B. So I think the architecture and layout of your house is probably the primary concern if we're saying, what's the minimum number of guns I need to be safe in my own house? I think that's fair. I think that's a very fair response and that that will differ for people. And so there's some variability. I just, I still, Eric, I'm just like, why do people need silencers and why do people need AR-15s? And and why do we increase this risk? But But this is the thing that I've really learned in our conversations, that my assessment of the risk is very different than yours. And my assessment of the benefit is exceptionally different than yours, because all I see on the other end of of using a weapon is is the trauma end of it and and not that protective end. And so that that has really been extraordinarily clarifying for me, even if it hasn't led me to a a clear understanding of what I think Second Amendment policy ought to look like. And. And, and I feel that too. And let me just say that I realized that the cheeseburger that I had for lunch today is way more detrimental, is way more likely to end my life than a violent attacker is breaking into my home. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> we can all read the numbers and statistics. And I know that um, I put a lot of focus into something that's a very low probability. Although I feel like one of the beautiful things about firearms is that understanding how they work and the responsibility behind them. I feel like it's very empowering to a lot of people. That's kind of the message I try to get across on my page is to be empowered by that and to learn first and foremost that we're here as protectors and to respect others. There are a lot of people whom you and I have discussed that strap on a gun and wear a a Punisher skull t-shirt and uh, they try really to intimidate others. I don't think that's the appropriate mindset to have. I think part of what works in our conversations is like that that we both will acknowledge facts like that, right? Well, like we I think yeah. we both are pretty good at acknowledging like here's a here's where this kind of falls apart for me or here's someone who you might lump with me that's not a great representative of my argument. Um the other thing I want to just touch on like really briefly is how we have not our our intention in our discussions has been to talk about guns, but it's like impossible to confine the discussion um, to guns, not just in terms of like our values and life experiences with guns, but but it just takes us into lots of other areas of politics and faith and family and life. And that to me is is a reason to keep coming back for these conversations. 
Because I think a lot of people that write to us about talking politics just view it as like an endless cycle of banging their head against a wall. And it doesn't feel like that to me at all. Well, thank you. I agree. I'm glad that we're we're able to keep our conversation nuanced enough to continue to be interesting. And I think we've learned a lot about each other and about um, other Americans like us over the course of our conversation. And we definitely need a lot more unity and understanding in this country. Um, so I feel like you and I have, at least between the two of us, helped in, increase our level of being able to do that. So I really appreciate that. What advice would you leave people with if they want to, like, if if they are a person like me who wants to talk to a person who feels like you or vice versa? Um, What advice would I leave people who are looking to get into uh, firearms? Um, I would say that you can get a lot of opinions out there from a lot of people that have very different perspectives on the purpose of firearms and how we should behave as, as gun owners. I think ultimately uh, people should engage with a crowd that fits their own personal moral beliefs about the use of deadly force. Um, I feel like this is at heart a moral issue uh, about a right to protect oneself and one family, one's family when no other tool will do the job. So I hope that just like uh, Beth, you've expressed many times that after joining the Democratic Party, there are a lot of people um, maybe far to the left of you that you don't quite understand, but you're still happy to be a part of that community, right? Um, I hope that people that are looking into the Second Amendment community can kind of filter out the noise of the people that are very, very far in a different direction than them and kind of focus on the very good people who will teach them appropriately how to responsibly exercise that right. And if you are in that community and you're talking with someone like me whose primary concern is bringing down the level of violence in the country and and is very open to restricting gun rights in order to do that, what would you say to people who are um, entering into that discussion from your perspective about how to, like, deal with me? <laughs> um, I think it comes down to people's values, ultimately. You have, um, you and I are able to talk very well about this because we try to really understand each other's values. And at the end of the day, um, I think that you know that I'm not going to really, really try to push you to go buy a gun. Although sometimes I do want to message you, Beth, and say, have you, uh, have you let your husband go buy that gun yet? Have you guys decided (laughs) to buy a gun yet? But I don't do that. Um, I think it comes down to values and just understanding that, um, as humans, one of our very most important civil rights is the ability to protect oneself. And I think a lot of people that are very serious gun owners take that perspective. Hopefully, your listeners that might be very interested in restricting access to guns can kind of see that from our conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate the discussions that we have. And thanks for coming on to, to share a little bit with everybody else. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Beth. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Thank you so much to Elizabeth and Eric for coming on here and being vulnerable and sharing, you know, their journeys on these tough conversations and inside of our relationships with them. It was really, really lovely. And I'm I'm so thankful that they were willing to do that. Sarah, what's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I don't want to confess this because I think it's embarrassing on a certain level. And on another level, I'm just so happy to have my life back. But I definitely watched the entirety of season six of Schitt's Creek yesterday, like in one day. It's the second day in in less than a week that I stayed up till 1230 watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> because I love it so much. I wanted to know what happened. 
and I just couldn't stop. And I regret nothing because now I can have my life back. I was happy to share it with the roses, but there was a lot of time that I was spending on Netflix, which I don't usually do, but I'm so, it was such a delight. The series finale was so lovely. And now hopefully I will have something else to talk about because I realized the last few times, including a nightly nuance or two, I've been like, well, we'll just have to talk about Shit's Creek because it's literally what I do, I'm doing with every moment of my free time. So you're not taking the treat it like a fine chocolate approach is what nope. I'm hearing you say. Nope. More like finish <laughs> off the entire pint of ice cream in one sitting. That's what I, that's what I did. Well, I watched, I think, four episodes from season six yesterday, which I thought was pretty excessive. <laughs> No nope. better. Try now. six hours. I'm like, no, listen, I, watched- I just I did it and I'm a little bit ashamed, but also just so happy to be done. <laughs> I was cooking Chad's birthday dinner yesterday and I had it on my iPad while I was in the kitchen working and it it brought me a lot of joy. Cooking brought me a lot of joy. Chad's birthday brings me a lot of joy. Although I feel bad because here's what happened. Last year, Chad turned 40 while we were speaking at Evolving Faith, and I did a poor job celebrating him. He was on a plane by himself for most of his 40th birthday, which is not how it should be. No. So I have been thinking 41 is going to be my big do-over. And then came a pandemic, and it's really difficult to have, like, a big birthday do-over in the midst of COVID-19. So I tried to cook him a very nice meal. We had some neighbors over last night who have really been in our sort of bubble throughout this whole thing. Our kids play together every day, and it was lovely and nice. My favorite part was that I, for the first time, platted bread. Yeah, it Do you know beautiful. what I'm talking I sent about a picture. when I say that? Yes, and I just yes. want to say you said I tried to cook a very nice meal. I received the pictures, and I'm I've heard the praise from your neighbors, so I'm confident you actually succeeded in cooking a very nice meal. I think so. I really enjoyed working on this bread. I've been working on my bread skills for a couple of years now, and it was so funny because I was following this recipe that gets to cut it into six pieces, roll each piece into a thirty centimeter tube bring the ends together, and then plat the bread. And I was like, hmm, I'm good. I guess I'm going to approach this like hair because I don't know another way. <laughs> and so I did, and it turned out really nicely. And then Chad got home and saw it sitting on the oven, and he was like, wow, your plat looks amazing. <laughs> what? Like, all these years of watching the Great British Baking Show have totally paid off. <laughs> because I that can't believe you didn't know that word. Complimenting my cooking is my love language. This is what I'm going to tell you. When somebody is just like, oh, my gosh, that was delicious. I'm like, well, I feel affirmed and good and happy and we can all be done now. So it really worked out well. But I made like this garlic Parmesan knotted bread that was just delicious. And and I thought it was beautiful, too. Thank you for saying so. Well, I'm about to fire up my bread making again. You know, I bought like a seven pound bag of bread flour in like March or April during the like sort of peak baking pandemic fever but then I'm not look I'm not baking in the summer it's too hot that's I know it's good for the starter and like nice humid temperatures help the bread rise I get all that and also I'm not turning my oven on to 400 degrees when it's 95 and humid outside I'm just not doing it but I love the idea of um, firing it back up now during the fall and winter months so I'm gonna need that recipe because I think I'm going and you might as well put it in the show notes because you know people are gonna ask for it because I'm ready to I'm ready to start baking again for sure I really struggled this weekend with everything with my mom, and I scrubbed my house very significantly all day Saturday, and then all day Sunday I cooked, and those two things gave me a little bit more of a sense of control in the universe than I was feeling, Mm -hmm. so it was helpful. It was helpful. 
Well, we all have to find our ways. Like, uh, you know, sometimes when I get overwhelmed, I think that's why I've been binge watching along with much of America is it just gets so intense inside my own head. I need to I need to go somewhere different. I would need to just go somewhere different. So I spent a lot of time at Schitt's Creek. That's where I went. Yeah. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. We hope that you all are finding those places and those moments of softness or control or whatever it is that you need. We'll be back here Friday with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Just a little, just a little note there. Uh, until then, keep it new ones, y'all. Pantsy Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. David McWilliams. Allie Edwards. Martha Brunitsky. Amy Whited. Janice Elliott. Sarah Ralph. Barry Kaufman. Jeremy Sequoia. Lori Lodow. Emily Neasley. Allison Luzader. Tracy Putoff. Julie Haller. Jared Minson. Marnie Johansson. Sherry Blim. Tiffany Hasler. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless. Linda Daniel. Joshua Allen. And Tim Miller. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.